Thank you very much. Well, cool. This is uh, another uh, storyline in Matthew chapter 8, where we've been talking about how Jesus responds after he moves um, from the mountain where he had the Sermon on the Mount. He begins to embody the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were here last week, you know that we were talking about uh, Jesus in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and how the storm, the waves, the dark were overwhelming the boat. And oftentimes people will make the connection between the storm that was tossing the ship and the storm that is within the man who's been demon-possessed in this story. And how Jesus is actually superior to what is outside of us and within us. And so when we look at this text today, there's a couple questions I want us to keep in mind. Uh, I do want to open up a little bit of time for some interaction afterwards. And so two questions, just keep in your mind as I'm talking. What are you hearing God say through the scripture? And what does that look like in action? That is our goal after we talk. Sound good? Three questions I hope to start the conversation by answering are these. What does darkness look like? We've been studying this whole section of scripture where Jesus embodies the dawning light that comes into the places of darkness as a fulfillment of the prophecy spoken by Isaiah. Those who live in the middle of darkness, the dawn has come. Those who live in deep darkness, the light has shone. This is a very real implication of what that looks like. So the first question, what does the darkness look like in our world? Second question, what does light look like in the face of aggression? And third, what do we do with the darkness within us? Okay, let's pray. God, we, we want to live your scripture. We want to live your life. We want you to be able to help us to see what's really going on in the world around us so that we respond accordingly, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, that you would allow us to find ourselves in this story, whether it be somebody who is struggling deeply within or someone struggling with someone else and their aggression. Jesus, show us your ways that you bring your light into our world. We welcome you and we need you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, first question, what does darkness look like? Well, Matthew 8.28 tells us a little bit about what it looks like. It's described in the life of these two gentlemen. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. And coming out of the tombs, they were so fierce that no one could pass by that way. These men had hell basically pent up within them. They were controlled by demonic forces that made them inhospitable, antisocial members of the community, and they'd been disregarded or cast out, or they chose to leave their homes because their life continued to bring wreckage around them. We see this is a picture of darkness, and I have a few quotes that I just want to share with us to get our head around what darkness looks like. Um, one author said, this, th- th- there was an ancient opinion ascribed to demon possession. They had the opinion that any disease which involved the loss of control, whether that be epilepsy, delirium, convulsions, or nervous disorders, or mental derangement, all of these uh, were in the category of demon possession. It was, a, it was a, just a, a loose description in a, lack, a scientifically lacking community. Does that make sense? 
but everything that they associated with demonic oppression or possession was all circulating around the idea of an invading power. It was an outside source that forced or influenced somebody to act in a way that they would not want to act. So in a way, we've, we've seen some of these darknesses throughout the different stories of Scripture. And if you've been around or traveled and done missionary work, maybe even come into contact with people who have been affected by demonic forces. It is not cool. It is scary. Um, I've sat in a room and had somebody doing an exorcism on somebody in my body with one of the experts in the area. It is not cool. It is very scary and very sober. The darkness that Satan brings into the world is often considered chaos, like the storm of the previous story, or confusion, or isolation, or tormented in fear. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, he describes demonic forces more like taking from us or consuming us. The quote goes like this from the book, We want cattle, this is a demon speaking, we want cattle who can finally become food. He, that is God, wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father, that is Satan below, has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy, that is God, wants a world full of beings united to him yet still distinct. Another author, Joshua Butler, in his book, uh, Skeletons in God's Closet, describes uh, darkness and evil as a corrosive power. He says, Our world is being ravaged by the destructive power of hell. Sin has unleashed it into God's good world. And God is on a mission to get it out, to reconcile heaven and earth from hell's evil influence to himself through the reconciling life of Jesus Christ. The time is coming when God's heaven, heavenly kingdom will come down and reign on earth forever, when Jesus will cast out the corrosive power of sin, death, and hell that have tormented this world for so long. Whether we know it or not, there is a dark reality in the unseen world. We are not in a conflict against people, but against powers. And by powers, I mean evil forces that wish to bring chaos to God's good world, that wish to twist and distort the things that God has made to bring death, not life, to us. The kingdom of darkness is almost pulling apart creation, trying to destroy life and all that is good. It is a culture of aggression. In verse 29, it goes on and says this, And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? What you don't see in this language is there's a hostility there. It's like a a two-part question that can't be answered. It's It's almost like an offensive way of addressing Jesus that could be interpreted as, What is your business with us? Or why are you bothering us? Jesus, don't interfere with what we're doing. These are the words that they're actually being communicated when when they were asking Jesus what he was doing. So we got a good picture of what darkness is, right? It's 
it's vicious, it's dark, it is not of light, it is of destruction, and by and large, aggressive. So the second question, what does light look like in the face of aggression? You see, we look at Jesus and we see his response to this uh, vitriol and this negative um, shouting at him. The way of Jesus in the face of aggression, we see that he doesn't answer, doesn't even respond. He doesn't shake his head. He doesn't discard. He doesn't push them away. He doesn't run. He doesn't cower down. He lives as it is the Sermon on the Mount that he taught. He does not return evil for evil. He simply stands. If you've been a part of a debate club or didn't done any work within uh, f- philosophical arguments, there's what's called a charity of principle or a principle of charity. That basically you are charitable or you're intended to be charitable towards the person that you are having a confrontation with. And by charitable, it means not that you're just going to take everything that they believe as truth, but rather you're going to look for the good or assume the best about what the other person is saying. Isn't that true when we're in conversations or arguments that if we were to just assume the best instead of the worst of the person that we're having an altercation with, we would get a lot further than just fighting about what we think they said? You see, Jesus, he faces the circumstance out of wholeness, not out of emptiness. He shows up not looking to to gain from these men, but rather to be wholeness towards them. And so he brings and almost uses this uh, principle of charity, and he looks through the vitriol. He takes time to, to personalize them and to understand that there's a story behind the action. There's a family, a home, a history. These men are not just monsters in society, although that's what they, the, the identity they've probably taken on and given to them by society. He sees that there is almost this, this questioning tension within them. A mix of the men's voice saying, Jesus of Nazareth and the demonic voice turning it to be broken and insulting. There's a blend of desperation with hatred. And what a difficult place to be. Desperate and angry. Desperate and overwhelmed. Desperate and confused. Desperate and having a chaos within you. These men were very real men who had issues and problems and were affected. They were swallowed in the darkness. So Jesus, he plunged into the darkness. One author said this about these, this complex question of the mix between desperation and meanness. He says, questions are confused as the demonics, uh, sorry, questions as confused as the demoniacs cannot be answered. And in fact, they are questions only in form. In substance, they are a mix of query and insult. It is a covering cry for help. I wish that I had the patience and the ability when I am being faced by aggression, when I am being faced by the twisted mix of query and insult of people who are threatened by one thing or another, and their only response is to be overcome with anger, fury, or aggression, for me to take the time to go, man, I'm not going to respond to the fury, the aggression. There's a cry for help in there. And isn't it like Jesus to show up 
in the space of Gentiles, the very darkest of dark, the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, and meet these two men. The author, he said that adolescents kind of have the same tendency to have a mix of query and insult. They have that angst, right? Where, where there's a lot of like idealism. They have good ideas. They have passion, but they don't always know how to apply it to real life circumstances. And so oftentimes we have a young generation. And I'm part of that generation at times, and I'm on the other end of it the other times where there's like this tension and this angst, and there's almost a challenge to certain things about Christianity, about the way we function in life, about our home, about society. And it's all too easy for us to respond negatively and to be defensive when the, next, when the younger generation asks questions, particularly with the sting of critique. But if Jesus was talking to our children to our young adults, to those who are wrestling with their faith on the edges of the church, not sure if they still want to follow. He would take the time. He would take on the chin their ridiculous questioning and hypothesis. And this isn't like a critique. It's, it's, it's real, right? Okay. Jesus would lean in. He would lean in for eye contact instead of like getting ready to respond negatively, right? We can see this not only in adolescence, but we can see this with adults on social media. Where we respond quickly, we shoot off responses that are from the gut and not from the heart. And it feels so right and it feels so good, but it's our flesh that is speaking, not our person in Jesus. And isn't it sad when we allow our shadow selves to drive for a little while and we just respond and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just did that. Or that wasn't like me. Or I'm just seeing red. Like, isn't that sad that us, even as followers of Jesus, we can become those who are mixed up with query and insult? Or what about me, even in my prayer with God, of mixing query? God, where are you? Why would you? Why wouldn't you? And God's like, come on, it's okay. I see the ugly, I see it, but I see you. I I see that dual nature of your, your person who's being redeemed and restored. And I also see the ugly shadow side of you that loves to take the wheel. And he loves to make you feel like that is your true identity. Another author talked about not only, um, uh, us as adults and adolescents, but addicts. Addicts struggle in the same way. What ancients called demonic, they are realities of various names. Sometimes today they're called addictions, compulsions, obsessions, and I would even say oppressions. Where there is a spiritual dynamic to many of these things, And I won't overemphasize that to say that there's no biological element to these things because there purely is. There purely is. All of creation has been shot through with the brokenness of sin. That includes our minds. And at times, the right thing to do is a combination of seeking God with our heart and going to a doctor to see what's truly going on. But I think we're 
become too dependent upon pharmaceuticals and we can numb ourselves when actually something is off within us and it's the spirit of God trying to convict us, trying to lead us, trying to guide us. We can numb ourselves into complacency. Our ancestors called them demons. We call them by different names oftentimes, one author said, but they are no less real nor malicious. I love how Jesus took the time to look deeper, to believe the fact that, as one author said, there is a person somewhere down underneath all of this chaos. You see what often happens, and we can even track this story. There was two, two men who lived in a society, and they found a home in the graves because they were no longer safe for those around them. And in fact, it was a known area. It would have been an area where they would have buried bodies. I mean, in Israel, there are caves that they would have lots of little pockets, lots of little caves on the outskirts of town, and that's where the Jewish people would bury their dead, and these men found only an abode among the dead. At some point, they lost hope that staying at home was going to be to their benefit. At some point, leaving was the best option for them. And isn't that somewhere that we can find ourselves sometime? When we continue to find ourselves failing, not living up to our expectations, the thought of loss of hope can drive us to be tempted to leave. Not only that, the next step after leaving, oftentimes people, if you leave your network of support, family structure, no matter how difficult it can be, when you leave and uproot yourself, as these men did, into the graveyard, they became isolated. Isolated in the midst of darkness, at a distance from family, as they journeyed away. Thirdly, they lost their bearings. Have you ever noticed this? When somebody uproots and moves, especially when they're angry or struggling with their faith, they often lose their bearings, their convictions. And when you're in isolation, the other thing that's really excellent for selfishness, but really toxic for following Jesus, is in isolation, I get to do what I want. I don't need to make room for you, and I don't need to, I don't need to tell myself no, I just do as I please in isolation. Because especially in this current day and age, as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, it doesn't matter, right? And oftentimes, when we're in a place where we have lost hope and we have left and moved away from others and become isolated, it's not because we're in a great spot. It's because we want to avoid the interactions with others and we want to just allow ourselves some space to let life happen. And when we're isolated from other people, even those signposts of family, responsibility, interactions, kindness, all of those things that cause tension in us, when those are gone, we get lost in ourselves. And the very contours of our conviction, they lose their shape. When we're not surrounded by other things that cause us to question and know where we begin and where we end, where our line is and where we would and wouldn't go, we lose our bearings and all too often our shadow self takes over. When there's no accountability, 
oftentimes our shadow self takes over. And this is when we see that what is inside begins to influence our outside. Notice that these two men, they decided to leave their homes and go. And the deadness that they felt within themselves, they surrounded themselves with in the graveyard. Isn't it true, and this is really sad actually, that oftentimes when people are in deep pain that has been unprocessed and unhealed, they often will manifest their darkness and pain on the outside to match the inside. They will surround themselves with the type of people that they think they belong to be. And they will practice the things that they think that they are uh, designated to. And so the storm within us influences the life we live outside of us. The storm within us shapes the life we live. And finally, after the shadow self takes over, we find the loss of self. These men no longer had individual identities. They became monsters in their minds and the minds of others, enslaved to the circumstances. So, I know we can all find ourselves in times or seasons where it's almost that a dark cloud just comes over our life and we're trying to find our way through and we wrestle to stay and not lose hope. We wrestle to stay in community and not isolate ourselves. We wrestle to maintain our, our bearings through scripture and through community and through intimacy with Jesus. We struggle to, to put to death our shadow self and put on the new life in Jesus. We struggle with the tension and we run a dangerous line between desperation and despair. When the darkness of hell visits our life, we can run the risk and walk a line between desperation and despair. I did a little research to figure out the difference between desperation and despair. Despair, according to one person, is you have no hope and you feel terrible and you don't want to do anything about it. You're stuck. No motive. Done. Desperation, on the other hand, is you have no other hope but to fight, to struggle, to try violently to do something. There is a massive difference between despair and desperation. You see, despair is what Satan loves to see happen in our lives. He loves to see it happen to our students. He loves to see it happen to the young people who are struggling with mental illness right now all around us. Suicide rates off the chart. Despair is what, what, is what Satan is trying to do because he wants to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus comes to give life. Desperation is not the same as despair. Despair is of the darkness. It is a dead man's tomb. You don't move through despair. You go there to die. Desperation, on the other hand, is a glimmer of life. It is intended to pull you through the valley of the shadow of death. Both are dark, but one has hope. Jesus loves those who are desperate. Why? Because 
desperate people know that they need help. Third question. What do we do with the darkness inside? Well, we must know this, that Jesus listens intently for a cry for help. He listens intently for the cry of help. If we sense that there is darkness within us, I encourage you to not give in to despair, but rather desperation that would cause us to move, act, not give up, not let go, but rather fight apathy, struggle against despair, and do, nothing, do, and do the one thing that you can cry for help to bring your darkness into the light. You see, that's what these men did. They were running towards Jesus, a mix of human desire for hope, but also the darkness rushing in. And Jesus responded to them in kind. Verse 30 says this, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told them everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. What is that? The monsters were made whole, and the culture of hell that was within them had been dispelled. And they sat quietly at the feet of Jesus. And behold, all the city came out to meet them, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. What? They begged him to leave the region? As I was reading this, I was like, okay, there's, what's explaining this community seeing a miracle happen, but they react in such darkness? Because I'm convinced that these men, they were stuck in the culture of hell when they were being possessed by demons. The chaos, the brokenness, they were being consumed, they were being discarded, and Satan loved it. But I think that's exactly what the culture was doing to them as well. Because to them, they were nothing other than the monsters by the sea next to our herd of pigs that are part of our economy. And so when Jesus, the presence of Jesus, disturbs their economic system, well, two more of those miracles, and our whole economy is going to be busted up. And so when the organized establishment is threatened, even by good, it can often chase away that good in hopes of keeping the establishment together. Yeah? Hmm. Interesting. So, this culture was a culture of darkness, much like the culture of the demons who were inhabiting these men before Jesus stepped in. Because why? Remember, the darkness within an individual or a culture will shape the world we create. So if we as a church tolerate darkness within, it will shape the culture we create. And culture is formed by both what you celebrate, hey, look at this, and what you tolerate. And so as a people, we need to be very careful 
to assess, are we weaving into our system of comforts, it all works, brokenness, darkness, that we'd be upset if it got messed with, if Jesus came in, right? Are we married to stuff that is just not of Jesus, but of the world? This society, three things, they preferred profit over people. They preferred a stable economy over true shalom. And they preferred established order over renewal. I want renewal in Jesus. And I'm okay with him like dumping this upside down if that's what renewal means. So I want to end by just bringing some of the words of Jesus to bear as we think about ourselves in these different compartments of desperate, despairing, or pursuing discipleship. Okay? Does that make sense? Desperate, despairing, or disciple. Not that they're isolated from each other. It's just all I could do with the Ds. (laughs) When we look at Scripture, Jesus gives an indication of what His ways are in the face of aggression. Many of you have people in your lives that they fire shots at you even as you're trying to work alongside of them. They can't help it almost, right? It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Can we just get coffee? We have those people. So what does that look like for us to engage them with? Because Jesus, he has given you dignity. He has given you value. And you, my, my friend and brother and sister, you are a child of the living God who inhabits God inhabits you and we bring the light of the gospel with us. We are the very image of Jesus and we have a message that is valuable. Jesus in Matthew Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw pearls before pigs. Jesus saw this society was closed. They were not desperate. They were just fine. And Jesus knew. And he went, okay. If you go into chapter 9, he gets in a boat and he leaves. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is good news. This is who God is. For God did not, come, uh, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Oh, if people would know that that's the heart of Jesus towards them to save them, not condemn them, to come onto the shores, the vitriol mixed with questioning, mixed with with poisonous words and insults would so easily be silenced as Jesus' grace would invade their heart. If only the presence of Jesus would be resilient enough in the people of Jesus to take shots on the chin and still offer dignity and love and be for somebody instead of against them, we would see breakthroughs in the world around us. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. The people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked wicked things hates the light. He does not want to come to the light lest the works should be exposed. How devastating. 
Yet we see the way of Jesus in Matthew 10, 13. But if anyone will not receive you, Jesus gives marching orders to his um, disciples. If anybody doesn't receive you um, or listen to your words, shake the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. Sadly, we were in uh, Cuba. I've done a number of trips to Cuba, and some homes, they would reject Jesus, but some would just open their homes to hear the gospel of Jesus like water in a desert. And there's uh, one of the ladies that was given to one of our workers. Um, She was an interpreter, and she took this passage very um, uh, literally. So whenever a house rejected the gospel, she would stand at their porch and be like, and walk away. (laughs) Dang, that's hardcore, right? Like, if you don't leave the Bible. Jesus says this, because he knows that we're going into a world of aggression, of challenge, of hardship. Not all of it is just simple. Some of it's dark and from hell. Some of it's driven by agendas that are just Satan delights in them. Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I'm going to close with a story. Um, when I was in, the, one of the last times I was in Cuba, we would go door to door and share the gospel with people and families would gather. And we went to one home and uh, the home would have been about probably half of the stage. And there was like six people living in it. And in one of the back rooms, there was a bunch of noise and racket. And I peeked my head in and as I was greeting people and I was like, oh, who's, who's back there? Because I could hear somebody kind of yelling and moaning. And they're like, oh, no, he's, it, it's no big deal. It's nobody. And I know I like, can I go, can I meet them? And they had a highly ha- handicapped child in, in a chair. He was just in the back of the house. And, um, and they knew that I was there to share Jesus with them and everything. And I remember kind of being like, like, no, can he come out? And they're like, no. And I was so like, my interpreter's like, chill, David. And I'm okay. And so I went to the living room, door still open. And I'm talking to the family and there's kids and grandma and uncle and all this. And I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with them. And I'm talking about um, the glory of, of heaven and the joy of um, living with Jesus and the renewal of mind, soul, and body. And this, this back room just got noisier and noisier and noisier and noisier. And I'm getting a little frustrated, right? And I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm like, Lord, this would be really nice if you calm that guy down so I can talk to these people about coming to know you. Would that be okay? And, um, and, and it just keeps getting noisier. And I'm talking louder. And my interpreter's like, at one point she goes, David, the, the boy in the back room is shouting, I want that, I want that, I want that. Those are the only clear words that we could understand when we were in that place. And they wheeled him out. And I remember just like bending down on my knees and like holding his hand and just speaking slowly and the most basic form of the gospel I could and just having tears rolling down his eyes. And I... 
for those of us who may feel in a spirit of desperation, saying, I want that. I want that. I don't know how to get there, but I want that. This isn't just salvation. This is like renewal. This is God taking away addiction or challenge or brokenness or wounding. God, I want that. And Jesus' ear is tuned to the broken who cry out of desperation. God is attracted to the desperate. You see, more and more, I believe that our problem, this is what Joshua Butler says, our problem is not that we're reaching out to a God and He's refusing to be found. It's the opposite. He's reaching out for us and we are scattering to other directions. Ultimately, we are judged not for our failure to successfully wrap our hands around God's arm, but rather for our stubborn refusal to be grasped by Him. My heart is that we would be a people of desperation, that we would become comfortable in that place of identifying more with the demoniacs than with the dignified. Because every day, I don't care how old you are, how long you've been following Jesus, like desperation is your line to the life of Jesus. So let us be foolish in public. <laughs> let us be determined to bring whatever we have to Jesus and cry out for help because he loves to hear your voice. Jesus' love in the face of Aggression and darkness, it is an unflinching love. And I wish that that would be one thing that we became known for as people, as the people who have unflinching love towards those who are struggling and towards each other as we wrestle, is a determined love that we see in Jesus. I'll close with that. Uh, I'm going to have the worship team come up. We're just going to take some time to meditate on the fact that Jesus speaks to us today. I'll ask you to close your eyes and allow what you're hearing to take a little bit of root in your soul. Ask yourself, Spirit, what are you saying to me today? And what does that look like in my life tomorrow? Lord, I ask that you would give us images in our mind of what it is to be loved by you right where we are. God, I know that every one of us, we have habits and things and practices and patterns, Lord, that we hate. And we want nothing to do with you seeing us in our worst state, but that's exactly how you run to us. Lord Jesus, thanks for coming near the graveyard where we hide. Lord, I pray that we would believe the gospel that you died 
to bring us to life, to beckon us out of the grave, to live lives of wholeness. Lord, I pray against a spirit of despair, of apathy. And Lord, would you fan into flame the flickering candles of our souls and breathe on us with your spirit. Would you expand our hope? God, would you make us a people after your own image that we may see your kingdom come and your will be done. Thank you, Jesus, that you died, that we might live. We remember you in taking of our communion and of offering ourselves to you. Thank you for being dependable. We love you in Jesus' name.